You might get started. Welcome to the Ox Transitional Justice um, Seminar Series. And today I'm very pleased to be able to introduce um, Regina Giussini, who is very familiar to many of us. She's, um, she's one of the OTJR committee members. Um, but in addition to that, she's also doing her doctorate in law here at Oxford and has two master's degrees under her belt. So she did her MSc in criminology and criminal justice. <laughs> Um, here at Oxford and an LLM from Georgetown University Law Centre. Um, in addition to this, sort of in her academic, when she's got an academic hat on, she also, of course, has her practitioner hat on, which seems to be a common feature among a number of OTJR speakers. But Rodina has actually worked um, as a legal officer at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and um, where she worked on the defence team for the former Prime Minister. Um, of Kosovo, is that right? That's right. Um, and, and his two co-defendants. And she's also offered, and I think this is particularly relevant to what we're going to be hearing um, Regina talk about this evening, she's also done pro bono assistance, um, or she's provided pro bono assistance to representatives um, of victims at the Extraordinary Chamber of the Courts of Cambodia. So there's a good geographical spread there, as well as, as, well as a good geographical spread in, in terms of her academic background as well. So it's been great to have her as a member of OTJR, and one of the things we really try to do is provide a platform for our researchers to present their work. So it's always one of my sort of favorite aspects of being involved in the group as a whole. So with all of that, um, I would like to present Rudina, and today she's going to be speaking on victim participation in international criminal proceedings. Are retributive and restorative principles enhancing the prospects for justice? So that's enough for me. Over to you, Rudina. Thank you very much, Nikki. I think you should have a ventilator here because I'm blushing already from all the I would like to thank the Oxford Transitional Justice Research for inviting and offering me a platform to talk about the scope and parameters of the participation of victims as civil parties in international criminal proceedings. I presume that not everybody here is a lawyer and that not everybody keeps abreast of the development in international criminal law and more specifically in international criminal tribunals. Therefore, I would first offer a short overview of the forms of involvement that victims have in a criminal trial and then focus more specifically in details on the role and the rights of victims to participate as civil parties in international criminal proceedings by analyzing how the expansive role afforded to victims by having greater procedural rights and substantive remedies, enhancing the prospect for a more inclusive justice in post-conflict societies, as well as by analyzing the potential shortcomings that this participation could have with regard to the functionality of court proceedings and the right of the accused to a fair and expeditious trial. Though legal systems may vary in respect of the rights that they afford to a victim of an alleged crime, it is acknowledged that in most legal systems, victims enjoy at least two fundamental rights, the right to act as a victim complainant and the right to act as a witness. Victims referred as a natural person or legal entity who has experienced harm as a result of a commission of an alleged crime within a specific jurisdiction has the right to charge or to file charges against individuals the same as other individuals who are not victims. They define what we call victim complainant. 
It is without any doubt that one of the most important roles that victims have in a criminal trial is that of a witness. Very often, direct victims are better equipped to provide persecution with information about specific aspects of, uh, of an alleged crime. Now, in some jurisdictions, and mostly in civil law jurisdictions, for example, like the, the French one, um, victims have another important role in addition to the two previous ones that I mentioned. Victims can participate as civil parties in criminal proceedings, so they have the right to attach civil claim to a criminal prosecution. In that role, they have the right to challenge evidence regarding damages. It is precisely the participation of victims as civil parties in international criminal proceedings that has garnered much attention and has been subject to strong, I would say, and great debates among academics and practitioners alike, which constitutes as well uh, the cornerstone of my doctoral research here at Oxford University. The incorporation of victims as civil parties in international criminal proceedings marks a significant advancement for victims' rights movement. Though a set of factors have influenced this uh, development, I would say that three primary factors have most substantially contributed to the victim participation scheme. First, the success of the domestic victims' rights movement in launching campaign at an international level. Second, the case law of some of the international human rights tribunals. And third, a shared determination to avoid the shortcomings of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, both UN tribunals which did not envisage and did not offer throughout their jurisprudence any platform for participation of victims as civil parties. The pronounced trend towards enhancing uh, victim participation was uh, first reflected in the efforts made by the International Criminal Court, which was the first international criminal tribunal to endorse an active victim participation in an expansion of victims' rights. But this dimension has been further heightened, I would say, at the extraordinary chambers in the court of Cambodia, which has offered an unparalleled characterization of victims as full parties in proceedings. So in addition to prosecution and defense, you will have victims who have been recognized and declared admissible, uh, being represented by their own legal representative and full parties in proceedings. I would speak, um, I will talk more in detail about the victim participation and the model used in Cambodia, but also I would like to add that this is a trend and it's also been reflected in the newly established tribunal, special tribunal for Lebanon. While it is believed that the participation of victims in international criminal tribunals by attaching civil claim to criminal prosecution enhances the prospect for criminal justice, I mean, for enhances the process for more inclusive justice, I would say, in, in post-conflict societies, yet the scope and the boundaries of such participation have not been fully developed, nor have they been clearly defined by any of these tribunals. In the landscape of changing uh, philosophy and practice, I would say that an analysis of this legal instrument that allows for incorporation of restorative element into retributive justice mechanisms 
in a way will reveal uh, weaknesses, well, strengths and weaknesses and potential avenues for application for tribunals of the future. The participation of victims as civil parties stems from two fundamental rights that are inherent to victims, the right to truth and the right to justice. I examine victim participation mainly from the perspective of a criminal justice theory rather than from the perspective of victims um, specifically. From a criminal justice theory, such a perspective allows me and other researchers to look at the role and the rights of all parties involved in the process. Uh, more specifically the right of the victims to participate, but as well as the right of the accused to a fair and expeditious trial. I look into the ICC and the ECCC, which is this tribunal in Cambodia, organizational and legal framework that supports this practice. I look as well as the practical implications that this legal experiment has with regard to uh, procedural entitlements that victims have during pre-trial and trial phase, the admissibility test for civil parties, as well as substantive remedies that victims may obtain at the end of the trial. Though the body of case law generated by the ICC and the ECCC is limited in quantity, but to some extent has offered, has defined the ambit of participation. Uh, so far in the extraordinary chambers in Cambodia we have had only one case completed. The ICC has not completed any case, so there is, it's limited in number, but I would say what has been decided, the way in which judges have crafted victim participation, has allowed us to have an understanding of where this trend is headed to. Mass atrocities and gross violations of human rights have occurred throughout the course of human history. But what is interesting here is that the one key difference is the invention of new and distinctive legal forms of response. The type of approach that the transitional justice society adapts varies greatly on a set of factors, and among others, history, culture, legal system, as well as specific needs of that particular society. Um, the response to mass atrocities as well may ranges and may take the form from the most informal ones, which is uh, revenge, simple oblivion, amnesty, to a more formal one, which engages you know, state court jurisdictions. Uh, of truth or fact-finding process by, uh, through forgiveness by the establishment of Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as well as the establishment of the International Criminal Tribunals ad hoc and permanent one. That would mean that um, while we have all this range in, since 1993, Till now, we have had these tribunals that has, have mushrooming in response to mass atrocities that have occurred in various parts of the world. And there is not one form that fits all. And the most important thing is that in, in light of what I mentioned before, that you have to take into consideration all the characteristics of that society and the peculiar or the particular features of that conflict in order to, to see the appropriate, appropriateness of the application of a transitional justice mechanism. But what prompted this trend? What prompted 
to have victims participated in a criminal trial. Now, the nature of international crimes and the magnitude of cases has made that the approach to trials has taken a far more hybrid form than in a domestic jurisdiction. The truth revealed in a conventional trial is very often, or mostly I would say, an individual truth. And relating to facts pertaining to one or more cases, but such a trial is a fragmented fact-finding process. And as such, fails, in my view, to uncover the truth about the conflict as a social phenomenon. The number of perpetrators brought forward before these tribunals, on the other hand, is very limited because these tribunals have been designed to try those most responsible for crimes committed. On the other hand, the conventional tribunals fail to engage and empower those who have been most affected by these crimes hence victims. So I would say that uh, at the extraordinary chambers of, uh, in the courts of Cambodia, which is the first tribunal that has offered like full scope and potential to the participation of victims as civil parties, it was fitting to that society to adapt this, uh, this uh, mechanism, this transitional justice mechanism. Their legal system resembles to a great extent the French legal system where victims have participated as civil parties and they are recognized as such by, by the Cambodian law as well. On the other hand, the peculiar nature of the conflict has made it imperative for the society that you have Cambodians being involved, so justice not only re being rendered uh, in, the seats, in the Hague or anywhere else, but actually engaging Cambodians to obtain justice from within. Now I'll talk a little bit more in specific about the, how victim participation has worked in practice in, in Cambodia as the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia. The ECCC stands as a sole judicial body to try those most responsible for the crimes committed during Khmer Rouge regime. So far we have five officials uh, who are in custody. Uh, the case number one, which was against Doik, the infamous director of the prison S21, if you are familiar with its called so it's known as 12 slang. And then uh, that case has completed, on trial level is pending appeals currently. Then you have four other officials who have been tried jointly. There is talk about the third and the fourth case, which I am not too optimistic that these cases will uh, take off because the pressure exerted on this tribunal is so high by the Cambodian government to not have these cases continued uh, further, but to stop the function of that tri tribunal only with the first and the second case. Perhaps no single issue at the extraordinary chambers of the court in Cambodia has gathered as much attention as the issue of the victim participation, distinctive in scope and its form. Victims, uh, civil parties, participation of these victims and civil parties has given a whole new dimension to the accountability mechanism there. Victims have been characterized as full parties in proceedings. Now, that too requires some interpretation because we should not be under the assumption that victims will play or will have the equality of arms as uh, the conventional parties' defense and prosecution. 
But nonetheless, this requires a realistic understanding that the drafters of the law and internal rules that govern the work of this tribunal saw fit that you should incorporate victims by providing them or offering them a venue to have their, heard, their voices heard. Now, how much their voices have been heard is another matter, and that has, left, um, has led to much dispute and criticism, I would say, of this tribunal. Although it is a particular salient feature of the ECCC, victim participation was considered the last issues that the drafters of the internal rules were considering. And you could see from the first internal rules, so far have been eight revisions, and most of these amendments actually affect the role and uh, the scope and parameters, the boundaries of the participation of victims in this proceeding. If you read the first provision in the first uh, internal rules, it's striking how little has been provided for victims of mass atrocities. There was not much guidance, and it was incumbent upon judges during the first trial to define the ambit of this participation. Uh, victims at the ECCC have the right to participate as civil parties if their harm is direct result of the charges of the crimes found in the interlocutory submission and the closing order, which will be, because the system in Cambodia is a little bit more inquisitorial, unlike the, the system that is more common among other uh, tribunals. But, I mean, closing argument by co-investigative judges would be as similar as an indictment brought by the prosecution in other courts. So only victims who have a direct, whose harm is directly linked to the charges included in this document uh, will be, can apply, and then the test of admissibility is a whole different issue. A civil party, according to the internal rules, is defined as a victim whose application to become a civil party has declared admissible, and the purpose for victim party, uh, civil parties' action is to participate in proceeding against those responsible by supporting the prosecution and to allow them to seek collective and moral reparations. Now, the wording of this provision is rather remarkable. It fails to include the word allegedly, so one might interpret that you presume the, the guilt of the accused right there. Then it goes on saying that by supporting the prosecution, now this leaves room for interpretation and could have potential consequences in my view. The wording suggests the possibility that civil parties may support the prosecution the same way that an auxiliary prosecutor supports public prosecutor in national in national system. It also suggests that those victims who may be interested to dismiss charges on the name of national reconciliation most likely will not fit this criterion. Ultimately, the wording relating to reparations is important because it recognizes the, the right of victims to redress. However, at the ECCC there is no trust fund, so for people who seek reparations, the only way to do that is by being member, applying to be a member of the joint civil party coalition, let's say. Then the other, because I mean, it's 
directly linked with the accused. The other difficulty, though, is that there is no trust fund from the tribunal, no funding for the legal representation of victims, which meant that in the first case, in the case of Doig, uh, 96 victims were recognized as civil parties, were divided in four legal teams who received support by Advocates on Frontier, GTZ, whatever NGO that could give money. So there was not even one voice in representing victims in the courtroom, and it drove judges mad, I mean, quite often, uh, without hesitation on making that remark. Um, Further, I mentioned that the right of victim to participate stems from two fundamental rights that are inherent to victims, the right to truth and the right to justice. These two fundamental rights were not even enshrined in the leading and the governing documents of the ECCC, which meant that the judges during uh, the, the trial chamber in the first case, well, undoubtedly felt necessary that they come up with a wording that better reflect these fundamental rights. Civil parties enjoy an array of participatory rights during the pre-trial and tri during trial phase. During the pre-trial phase, their lawyers have the right to consult the case file. Uh, their lawyers have the right, or let's say the civil party cannot be questioned by a co-investigating judge unless their lawyers are present. Furthermore, during the trial stage, uh, victims have been granted a, you know, a great array of rights, and starting with the right to call for a particular or specific investigation if they feel the need that uh, specific aspects of the crimes alleged have left without being investigated. That would mean that even in the case the co-investigating judges do not agree to, to bring the case forward, victims through their legal representatives have the right to send or to appeal that decision to a pre-trial chamber. They have the right to call witnesses, they have the right to question witnesses, they have the right to question the accused, to write uh, closing arguments, to rebut the closing arguments of the accused, and to request reparations. All in all, this sounds like a grand aspiration, which in theory would offer anybody to believe that yes, there is a plausible opportunity for victims really to have their voices heard in a criminal trial. I would say that the case number one, which is the Doi case, actually proved quite difficult in that respect in advancing all these rights that were provided in paper. As I mentioned to you before, having four legal teams uh, created, or not speaking with one voice, created complexity in terms of what was asked by each legal team, what victims wanted. Uh, this has been rectified in a certain way by the pre-trial chamber in the second case by having all victims being represented by only two lawyers who will bear the bulk of advocacy in the courtroom. Victims, each of them individually could have a lawyer outside of the courtroom who could feed the main lawyers with information and request whatever the victims felt necessary. But 
two interesting uh, elements that came across during the first trial is um, in one of the occasions, I mean, in one occasion, the I mean, victims requested that they have a saying on sentencing. Victims also requested to pose questions to witnesses or to pose questions that relate to uh, inculpatory materials to witnesses, not done otherwise by a prosecution. So the judges ruled for the, the second one that yes, victims have the right if they want to take the proving of the guilt you know, step further, they can do that. But in terms of sentencing, the said sentencing is purely prerogative of the prosecution and the victims have not uh, any saying in that. Uh, issue of the issue of reparation. Perhaps one of the most talked issue relating to victim participation, one of their fundamental rights is the right to seek reparation, the right to redress. When you read the internal rules of the ECCC, you notice very clearly that the ECCC makes a great attempt to offer victims a platform for reparation, though not a very feasible one. Uh, on one hand, victims have the right to seek moral, collective reparations, have the right to have their names included in the judgment, to ask for the letter of apology. Could, there could be like 4,000 victims here, and they could all ask for a letter of apology by the accused. Now, you read the judgment that was rendered against DOIC on the 26th July 2010, and you soon realize that how little has been offered to the victims of mass atrocities or the victims of Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Two, basically two rights were recognized. The right to have this compilation of a letter of apology and the right to have all the names of civil parties, 96 of them, included in the judgment. Furthermore, the trial chamber argues that it is outside of the authority of the chamber to offer any individual or material reparation. Furthermore, it argues that it doesn't even have the authority to enforce any such reparation because that lies entirely within the authority of a domestic Cambodian court. If I could bring here a quote that a judge at the ICC well, told me during an interview, and a judge who comes from a civil law jurisdiction that applies victim participation in criminal proceedings said that I don't want to see a bunch of lawyers getting paid, justly so, for work that they do, but for victims who get nothing at the end. And another crucial point that I think brings quite a form of ambivalence as to the role of victims is let us assume we have 12 villages that have been attacked during the conflict. The prosecution decides to bring an indictment forward that concerns or limits narrow the indictment to two villages. Then why are the victims of these two villages different from the victims of the other, you know, 10 villages of the same regime, of the same mass atrocities? The why are the names of these victims included and known as being, you know, victims of this regime but not the others? So there are issues that I, as a scholar or say as somebody who is researching this um, 
particular field that victim participation poses with regard of uh, functionality of court proceedings. How far can you stretch a criminal trial to accommodate all the interests of victims and others? And that's a that's a crucial one. And most lawyers, like people who have their hearts set on the retributive justice, would say that there is no room for victims in a criminal trial. If you want, you can set up another mechanism that offers victims uh, a platform for truth telling or you know a nar narrative and all of that. But on the other hand, I would say that there, this uncompromising effort made by victims to have their voices heard in extraordinary circumstances when you have an overwhelming number of perpetrators and overwhelming number of victims makes it compelling to design a system that affords them a platform that restores their dignity and not only to recognize the harm done. And I will welcome any questions you have. But thank you.